And now, Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Think about the climate issue in the context of what we need to do to deal with, for example, extreme heat and what that means in urban communities where there's only asphalt that just actually exasperates the heat effect and where there are no trees and what that means in terms of the public health consequences of that. This has been Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Stu Does America. StuDoesMerch.com is the place to go to get the best conservative merch. Promo code is Stu10 if you want to save 10%. 624.22. Anniversary is coming up pretty soon. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, like the video right now, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell for notifications. Do all the things. Ab- Speaking of 624.22, Abby Johnson, known pro-life advocate, is here to talk about her new film, She Was Stronger. James Bond author Ian Fleming is getting the role doll treatment. We'll get into that. But we start by doing the lab leak reversal. Here we are, everybody. Time to totally say the things that were totally wrong to say just a few months ago. Yes, there seems to have been a complete and utter reversal as to whether the COVID-19 came from a lab leak. We were told you were never allowed to say those things. And now the government's just blurting it out and not even the government, because you might say, oh, well, of course, the Trump administration said that very early on. And they did. However, now it's the Department of Energy under the Biden administration, which is this. I don't know if we ever thought we'd get here. Uh, Lab leak theory uh, is now the most likely caused of the pandemic, says the Energy Department. The conclusion, which was made with low confidence, came as America's intelligence agencies remain divided over the origins of the coronavirus. None of the systemic racism claims are made with low confidence. Nothing. There's never a low confidence claim. They never point that out in the New York Times, but this one, they made sure to do that. New intelligence has prompted the Energy Department to conclude that an accidental laboratory leak in China most likely caused the coronavirus pandemic, though U.S. spy agencies remain divided over the origins of the virus. Got to get that uh, disclaimer right up front. American officials uh, did say this this weekend. The conclusion was a change from the department's earlier position that it was undecided on how the virus emerged. Some officials briefed on the intelligence said that it was relatively weak. And the Energy Department's conclusion was made with low confidence, suggesting its level of certainty was not high. Really, does that is that what low confidence means? Does that when someone says I have low confidence, does that suggest that uh, this the level of certainty was not high? What an thank you for existing, New York Times. What would we do without you? While the department shared the information with other agencies, none of them changed their conclusions, officials said now. This is not the point of the story, but I must bring it up. Why the hell is the Department of Energy giving us an opinion on whether COVID-19 was lab leaked? But why, why are our institutions, why are our agencies so large and so wide with such a wide berth of options for them to spend your money on? Uh, why are they involved in this? Now, in this particular case, I'm happy they're involved in it because they seem to be one of the few sane people and organizations out there on the topic. 
But I got to say, I don't know if the Department of Energy should have this in their purview. I guess it's tied to them also having bioweapons under their purview. But again, should they have bioweapons under their purview at the Department of Energy? And I guess that's because they also have nuclear weapons under their purview, which, okay, you're getting close to a reason. But really, it seems to be a, a tad expansive. China says this didn't happen. What are you talking about? They rejected the Energy Department's lab leak theory of COVID's origin. Shocking to hear. Fox News has a story, Dr. Fauci, Fauci being blasted over new revelations about the COVID lab leak. We need to crack this egg open. Uh, that's uh, from Representative Van Drew. It'll be interesting if the Republican majority in the House leads to some of these people at least being called to account. You know, I, I don't know that you're going to get any real lasting repercussions for this stuff, but we need to at least have it out in the open so we can look, you know, we can know what to look for next time. That would be uh, helpful and get it out there and, and see what some of these redacted messages are, see what we know about what China was doing. And the fact that China can sit here and just deny this without, it's one thing if they were to deny it and give us another story of that's plausible, they won't even give us the information that we ask for to confirm their supposed natural spillover uh, theory. Now, as they point out, there's still varying uh, opinions in the in the intelligence world about how this happened. There are several intelligence agencies that think either it's inconclusive or maybe it's natural spillover. The FBI, again, the FBI, question mark, it also gave us uh, a mediate or moderate co- uh, confidence uh, on the lab leak. Now the Department of Energy is involved. And it's really hard to know. We, I don't think they know. You know, it's, we were talking about this a little bit earlier uh, off the air. If this is a murder story, we would have so much circumstantial evidence that everyone would know. It's like OJ, right? Like, we all know OJ did it, right? Right, OJ? We all know you did it. We're all there. We're all positive you did it. We have all the circumstantial evidence. We seem to have basically DNA evidence the equivalent of that in the COVID-19 story. And like the other proposed, you know, possibilities here, natural spillover, they still can't find the animals. They can't find the reservoir in, in nature. All these things just add up to circumstantial evidence being really clear. I, you know, for example, I uh, am overweight. Okay. Why am I overweight? Well, I think it's because I go to Taco Bell like 18 times a week. You know, I mean, I think, and that's the healthy meals I have. Right. That would make sense to me. All the evidence adds up to the fact that Taco Bell and other various fast food establishments are the cause victimizing me and making me overweight. Now, is there a possibility that I have a glandular problem? Maybe. Maybe I have an undiagnosed glandular problem. And if I had salads every single day, I'd still be a fat ass. That's possible. It's just really, really unlikely. And this is kind of where I am now on the lab leak theory. All the circumstantial evidence adds up to the lab leak theory. You kind of like, okay, show me evidence for the other side. Show it to me. Right now, we're not getting it. Now, this is, of course, not the big story. The story is here not to solve the COVID-19 origin. We don't have that level of certainty yet, even though I'm pretty sure about it and you probably are too, we might not have that rolled up the scientific way uh, quite yet. But what we know is the fact that so many people lost their social media accounts, lost their livelihood. Doctors' lives were ruined. Scientists' lives were ruined. Their reputations ruined. Politicians had their reputations ruined over this. How do they get their lives back? 
How do they get their reputations back? This is why you don't go canceling everybody every time they say something you don't agree with. Maybe you're not as sure as, you know, I don't think we should go out there and start banning people who think it was natural spillover. I will never advocate for something like that. Instead, what we had was people who said, oh, it's a lab leak theory. Well, they must be crazy people. And so many of them had their lives destroyed or at least reputations destroyed because of it. And the media just went along with this. You know, there was a real rush to find credentials uh, during the especially early COVID days. Anyone who was officially approved to be on your media channels, to come from the government with an authoritative voice, unless that name happened to be Donald Trump, all those people were just kind of believed. They were just believed immediately. And this is a real problem. That's not to say everything they said was wrong, that all of them were bad, but like there was no discernment and there was no ability for people who disagreed with those voices to be allowed to speak. That is, of course, one of the big crimes when it comes to the COVID era. Let's look back at the media a little bit. Listen to the way they judge this. This is back from March 2020. Vox wrote, in public health crisis, conspiracy theories are a distraction. It's our collective responsibility to stay focused on keeping each other safe. And no, coronavirus did not start in a Chinese lab. Are they embarrassed by this? May 2020. Ted Cruz had a tweet about the, uh, the Chinese lab leak. Glenn Kessler, this is the fact checker over at the Washington Post. I fear Ted Cruz missed the scientific animation in the video that shows how it is virtually impossible for this virus to jump from the lab or the many interviews with actual scientists. We deal in facts and viewers can judge for themselves. Really? When you're telling them that you've checked the facts and everybody who disagrees with you is wrong, I don't know if that's really... Uh, what you're saying about people making their own minds up. Trump's Wuhan, they love this one. It's from Vice. Trump's Wuhan lab coronavirus conspiracy theory is bogus according to, uh, everyone. Oh, the just condescending smarmy nonsense from Vice. And now, do they come back and apologize? My guess is no. Joe Rogan spreads unfounded conspiracy theory that COVID-19 started in a lab. This is from Media Matters for America. And little known fact, these are some of the few people uh, actually on the planet worse than the Chinese Communist Party. Collection of people worse than genocidal maniacs. Uh, September 2020, AP. Research shows COVID-19 was not manufactured in a lab. The word manufactured a lot of times gets the hanging here because, you know, manufactured is like... Well, you know, it almost insinuates that it's a bioweapon, like it was intentionally released on the public. You know, some people believe that there's not a ton of evidence to support that. It seems more likely it was a mis- you know, intentional research with a mistaken spillover to their local population. Again, if you're going to release a virus, you usually don't want to necessarily release it on your own people, though China would probably do that. Though I will say the Chinese Communist Party is still better people than the people who work at Media Matters. So that's... Uh, Another here nor there. Scientific American uh, came out with this one Uh, on CNN. Former CDC director Robert Redfield shared the conspiracy theory that the virus came from the Wuhan lab. Epidemiologists and virologists are doing heroic and urgent work on social media, debunking everything he said. Thanks so much to them. You know, and I talked about credentialism, which is interesting here because Robert Redfield was the CDC director. No one cared about that credential because he was saying something they didn't want. Fascinating. Uh, New York Times reporter Apurva Mandavili said someday 
we will stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit its racist roots. But alas, the day is not yet here. That's May of 2021. This isn't May of 2020, or maybe it might give them a break. May of 2021. Guardian in 2021, again in May, Facebook lifts ban on posts claiming COVID-19 was man-made. You know, that's over a year after the conversation started. And they're just stopping the banning of posts insinuating it. June 2021. This is from uh, Greg Price, who I believe is a Philadelphia Eagles fan, uh, making him a good person. Democracy dies in stealth edits on 15 month old headlines. Uh, he notes the uh, the headlines. Can you tell the difference? Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that was already debunked. And then they edit it later on. Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus fringe theory that scientists have disputed. Now, that's a more I guess I don't think it's fringe, but it's more accurate than the other way. A group of scientists press a case against the lab leak theory of covid. A group of scientists this week presented a review of scientific findings that they argue shows a natural spillover from animal to human is far more likely than the cause of the pandemic. That's July 2021. Now, I didn't need the Department of Energy or any other government group to give me this information. A lot of really good people did a lot of hard work to try to find the answers, and they did it with an open mind. A couple of examples for you. Um, uh, Matt Ridley, uh, an author we've had on before. I really like Matt Ridley. He wrote a book called Viral, The Search of the Origin for COVID-19 that came out, I think, last year. Uh, in The Spectator had the piece, The COVID Lab Look Theory is Looking uh, Increasingly Plausible. Now, that's in May in 2021. What's interesting about Matt is very early on, as he's talked about on the show, uh, he initially looked at the evidence and said, OK, maybe it was natural spillover. He wasn't an, he didn't instantly jump to the idea that it was China. The evidence convinced him because he was open minded to follow the evidence. Another person who was really on top of this from the beginning, uh, National Review, J Jim Garrity, uh, he had the cover story he had, which was February of this year in 2022, made in China on the evidence for a lab leak. But his first article on this was written in April 2020. This all goes to the point where, look, we shouldn't be looking to the government to give us the, the truth. You know, the, the fact that the Department of Energy comes out and says, hey, uh, we think this happens. That's great. It's great. But like we're it's more important than trusting the government. That's how we got in the trouble in the first place. The bigger thing here is to make sure that when people have dissenting views, they're not silenced. Their voices aren't crushed. Their careers aren't ruined. Their livelihood is not destroyed. If you just let people say the things, even if you think they're nuts, just come out with evidence that defeats their arguments. That's how free speech works. You want to live in China where they tell you what to say and penalize you and destroy your life if you say the wrong thing. That government system is available. It's just available on the other side of the world. Our government system, our system of civilization indicates that we should be able to have these conversations even when one side is completely insane, which was obviously not the case here when you're talking about the lab leak theory. So will there be any repercussions? Will, they, will there be any accountability? Not so far, but it's important that we continue to work for that accountability or at the end of the day, we are vulnerable for all of this happening all over again. Talk, we've been talking about social media insanity and you turn on the news and you open up Twitter 
uh, one thing becomes blatantly obvious in the world, and that is the desperate need to have good, solid people. Godly men need to step up and do their part to redirect our society back uh, to get on the rails once again. Uh, men must not give up meeting together and encouraging one another. It's important. And, and this is something that is, I know uh, Jason Whitlock's been working on for a while here. The world is sort of full of cynicism and darkness, but that's why Jason Whitlock decided to organize the Fearless Army. Uh, the Fearless Army Roll Call, uh, you can get involved in this. It's an all-day event to encourage men to put on the full armor of God and take a stand against the evil forces destroying American culture. At the conference, you will hear speeches from Jason and several special guests. Uh, they will be there to inspire you to be a better husband, better father, a better witness of Christ. Roll Call will inspire, uplift, and even entertain. It's going to be a great day. You can join hundreds of like-minded men in Nashville on April 15th for this important conference. Tickets are going to sell out, so secure yours today by going to fearlessarmyrollcall.com. Fearlessarmyrollcall.com. You can reserve your spot today. And hurry, prices are going to go up in 10 days after March 5th, so get involved now. Fearlessarmyrollcall.com. I'm happy to welcome Abby Johnson back to the show. She's the founder and CEO of And Then There Were None, and they have a brand new film available right now, She Was Stronger, which is great. We're going to get into this in a minute. You can request a screening of the film at SheWasStronger.com. Be sure to head there today and check it out. Abby, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Stu. Yeah, I, I want to um, get into the, the film and everything you've been up to. Um, can, can we go back, though, for people who might not know your story? Can you kind of tell people how you got to be sitting here in this chair today? <laughs> Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I worked at Planned Parenthood for eight years. I was a clinic director for one of their facilities in Texas, um, the one of the Houston affiliate facilities. And, you know, got involved as a college kid, thought I was doing the right thing, thought I was there to help women, mm. and uh, thought I was there to help make abortion safe, legal, and rare, right? Yeah. And uh, was there for a long time, and then... Things started to kind of change. You know, the higher up I got in management, the more I started to see behind the curtain, I guess. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, are things changing or is it that I'm just finally seeing what we've been about all along? Hmm. And I realize now it was the latter. But you know, I, I started being instructed to double abortion clinic quotas, the number of abortions we had to sell. We started really being pushed. You know, this is how you sell an abortion. This is how you, you know, turn that pregnant woman into an abortion client. That's sort of, that started being really directive. Um, and then ultimately I ended up being asked to come in and assist in an ultrasound guided abortion procedure, which ultrasounds are not typically used during an abortion procedure. Mm -hmm. And I watched a 13 week old baby fight and struggle for his life mm -hmm. during that ultrasound procedure. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, even being there eight years, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I just knew then that I was on the wrong side of this debate and I knew that I could never participate in abortion again. And I, I didn't ever intend to actually do this. Right. I thought I'm just gonna slink away and go get another job and just do my own thing. I mean, I thought, I don't want anybody to know that I've worked in an abortion clinic. Right. I mean, I thought that would be embarrassing for people to know what I've done. But Planned Parenthood actually sued me. 
and they tried to get a gag order against me so that I wouldn't be able to share my story, so that I wouldn't be able to tell people all of their dirty laundry, all of the secrets that I knew. And that is what actually propelled me into mm. this seat right here. This was a mistake by Planned Parenthood. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. it was a it was a PR yeah. PR mistake on yeah. their part. Yeah, because I mean, you I think we get we have some people who you know were maybe against uh, abortion the whole time and they're out, and I, I'm really thankful that those voices are out there as well. But yours is uniquely powerful. I mean, you were employee of the year. Yeah. For Planned Parenthood, right? You saw all this stuff going on, and it and it seems to be a consistent thing where employees come into Planned Parenthood and they get. Little bits and pieces. Hey, you're working on the right side of history. Hey, you're helping out women in times of need. You know, you get the nice flowery part of that at the beginning. But once you get down that road, it becomes uglier and uglier. Yeah. And that happens all the time. Mm. So our ministry and then there were none assist people who work in the abortion industry. We assist them in their exit out of the abortion industry. And all the time these workers come to us and they will tell us, when I got hired, I was told that I was only going to work in the front as a receptionist, or I was only going to have to take money. Mm-hmm. I was only gonna do billing. Yeah. I was only going to answer the phone, right? Just like any other job. Yes, yeah. and little by little, they start transitioning them to other parts of the clinic, right? All of a sudden, they're taking vitals, right? They're doing blood pressure. They're doing some labs, things like that. And then, you know, they start working more and more with patients. They're doing counseling. Counseling, I say that loosely. But they're, you know, doing patient education, whatever. And then, okay, well, we're going to have you start working in the procedure room. And you're going to start helping the doctor. You take on more and more responsibility. And then all of a sudden, you're back in the POC lab. And that's where you actually piece the baby parts back together. And Mm. by that time, you've become so desensitized to what you're doing day in and day out. Plus, they keep giving you pay increases for all the responsibility that you're taking on. So you're living this really comfortable lifestyle with the salary that you're making every two weeks. And you think, oh, my gosh. I'm a single mom. I'm the, you know, breadwinner for my family. I'm making this salary. I'm living on this salary. How can I possibly leave? Um, they've got they've gotten you hooked into a lifestyle that you feel like you can't leave. And it's kind of a slow fade. Yeah. But it happens. And the majority of women working in these abortion clinics are single parents. Um, we talk all the time about the abortion industry, how they are predatory on Mm. vulnerable populations, right? Yes. So 79% of abortion facilities are built intentionally in minority neighborhoods, right? That is quite a a statistic. Yes. It's amazing that somehow the racist side of the debate is the side that wants to keep all these children alive. I, I, I will never understand that. Right. So they are... You know, we talk about systemic racism, right? But yeah. we conveniently ignore yeah. that it is the the Democrats that are systemically trying to destroy the black population, the minority population, From through founding, widespread really. access to abortion. Yeah, and this is, goes back to Margaret right. Sanger. Absolutely. Yeah. So she, you know, very publicly uh, promoted eugenics, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and Planned Parenthood now has even admitted this. Yeah. So in the past couple of years, they've even come out and said, mm, OK, yeah, she was a racist, Oops. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, we'll Oopsie. admit it now. Mm-hmm. So 
we know that they prey on these vulnerable populations when it comes to their clients, their patients, but what is very rarely talked about and what you do see in She Was Stronger is that they actually are very predatory when it comes to their workers as well. Yeah. So they're looking for minority workers. They're looking for workers that have had abortions previously. About 70% of women who work in the abortion industry have had abortions themselves. Mm. They're looking for uneducated women. They're looking for minority women. They're looking for impoverished women. Um, so they're looking for you know single moms, women who could otherwise not make the kind of money that the abortion industry is willing to pay them. Mm. And that is incredibly predatory. They're looking for vulnerable populations of people. Yeah, it's really remarkable. I mean, watching your movie, which is great, by the way. I mean, it really, it, it's not, it's a part of the industry I don't think of enough. I, sure. I, you know, I often am thinking of the women or the, the, the children that are, are, sure. are not here. You don't think about the workers all, all the time. And I know that's been a big focus of yours. And as I was watching it, I, I got the sense that part of it, above and beyond the economic incentives and the way they sort of slow play the information, part of it was once you've been involved in it in a while, uh, for a while, you can't allow yourself to admit that there's something going on there because then all of a sudden you're kind of, you're putting yourself in that position that you've been part of this thing that is not good. And it, it like, it almost, the, the beginning of that, as you, as you, before you really get that information, almost locks you in to stay. Because you have this almost, uh, you'd have to admit some level of guilt to yourself to be able to turn that around. And that's incredibly difficult for any human being to deal with. Sure. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to admit our sin, yeah. right? Yeah. It's hard to admit what we've done. Yeah. And especially a sin like that, <laughs> right? right? So if, if I'm, I mean, that was really the hardest thing to accept for me. So not only have I had two abortions of my own, hmm. right? I've had a surgical and a chemical medication abortion, but I've worked in the abortion industry. I've facilitated over 22,000 abortions during my time in the abortion industry. Hmm. So when I'm thinking about leaving, I'm sitting here saying, oh my gosh, if I leave, if I admit to what I have done, what am I actually saying? I'm saying not just that I participated in 22,000 abortions, but if I'm really honest with myself, that means I've participated in 22,000 murders. Mm. Like, is, is that really what I'm saying? Right. Is that really what I believe now? Am I really saying that I murdered two of my children? Mm. Like, am I, am I really willing to come out and say that? How do you, how do you, how do you go through this conversation? I mean, you know, for me, it was just like, I have to be honest. I have to be honest with myself. And I mean, it was such a, and really people, it's kind of cliche, like a coming to Jesus moment, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But it was for me. Mm -hmm. And I thought I can't hide what I've done from Christ. And so I can't hide what I've done from myself. Mm. And so I just have to admit it. I have to ask for forgiveness. I have to repent of that. And I just have to be honest and I, I can't hide from it anymore. And it was hard, but it hurt, right? It right. was hard to admit that even now I've been saying this for 13 years, sure, yeah. right? But even now saying it, it still kind of stings. Right. 
I mean, I, I mean, of course, you've gone on to do some, so much to, to stop this from happening, and, and your work has been so important. So I know that's, I'm sure, part of yeah. uh, the process. And I, I, it's, it's interesting because, you know, this has been an incredible year, right, yeah. w- in terms of this movement. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this, you know, stupid show or some version of it for a million years now, and I've been wrong a bunch of times. But I don't know that I've ever been more wrong because I said and promised to my audience for the basically the entire time I've been on the air they're never going to overturn Roe versus Wade. I want it to happen. It should happen. I'm praying every day that it happens. But that's never going to happen. Let's be honest about it. And then all of a sudden, it happened. It happened. <laughs> so take me back to that, that moment, which is a huge moment in this movement. You know, when, it fi- when it leaks initially, when it finally happens, what did, you, what did you feel and what did you take from it? Yeah, it was really cool, actually, when it did happen. Because every year we um, host... Our organization hosts the um, an annual pro-life women's conference, mm-hmm. and so uh, this past year, we were all together actually on June 24th. It's always that same weekend, mm-hmm. um, and it's always the weekend after Father's Day. And so we were all together, wow. and we had heard that you know it was going to be announced around those days, mm-hmm. right? And so then we got the news it was going to be announced at 10 o'clock on the 24th. And so we all just, there were hundreds and hundreds of women there. And so we all just gathered down and we're all on our phones, like refresh, (laughs) refresh, refresh, you know? And, um, when it finally came out, we're all just reading really fast. And then, you know, we were like, Oh my gosh, it's overturned. And there was just screaming and just jumping up and down and people just hugging each other and just weeping. Yeah. So many women just weeping because the pro-life movement is made up of converts. The pro-life movement is made up Mm. of so many women who have laid on that abortion clinic table, Mm -hmm. who have taken the lives of their children, who now realize what they've done. Mm. And so many of those women were represented there in that moment. And I was, I couldn't imagine a better place to be than right there in that moment with those women. And, and so many of us know the destruction of Roe and what it caused. You know, if Roe hadn't have been on the books, I would not have killed my two children. If Roe mm. had not have been on the books, I wouldn't have worked inside of an abortion clinic. I wouldn't be responsible for 22,000 abortions. It, it wreaked havoc on the lives of so many women. And so to be there in that moment and to see it overturned and to see just women just so full of joy, um, it was really beautiful. Mm. I want to get back to what it means uh, kind of going forward here in just a second. I'm talking to Abby Johnson and we're talking about uh, her uh, great organization uh, and then there were none. Uh, the movie as well, She Was Stronger. You can get that online. We'll give you all the details here in a second. Abby Johnson, uh, more with her in just a minute. We're back with Abby Johnson, founder and CEO of Then There Were None. Make sure to head to SheWasStronger.com. Learn all about the new film, appropriately titled She Was Stronger. Wouldn't make much sense if it was entitled something else. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned your, your, the women's conference you were at when you know, 6 22 happens and, and, and all this goes on. It's funny because I happened, last time I saw you, I think, was at a totally different conference. <laughs> 
called CrimeCon. Yes. Uh, apparently, uh, you're a true crime uh, fan. I am. And uh, I, you know, it's it's the biggest true crime conference in the country. I'm walking down. It was so weird to see you out of context like that because I was walking down the hall and then all of a sudden there's Abby Johnson. <laughs> and I, I had you just like this stuff as much. I mean, I, I think a lot of people do, especially with the Netflix documentaries and everything that's yeah. out there. Um, this is a this is uh, something you're really interested in. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm like a true crime junkie, like <laughs> most middle-aged white women. Uh, I love Dateline, and my you know my dream was to meet Keith Morrison. Yes, of course. And and I did, and so I feel like life is complete now. I have a picture with him. So um, yeah, I I was yeah it was funny because I I was like, is that Stu? Let's do here. Like it was so weird. Um, yeah, we're just used to seeing each other here, so yeah. it's kind of it was kind of funny. But um, yeah, we love it. We go every year, so it's, it's, it's a great super event. Fun. It's a blast. I mean, it's, it it's like one of those things you be like, I'm going to go what and hear about a bunch of murders for the. <laughs> but it is it's, it's so much fun. It's and it's so interesting as they have all the you know forensic experts and all yes. that stuff going. It really is fascinating. The thing I love about it too is that a lot of people are like, you want to go hear about crime? Like you want right. to go hear about murders? And I'm like. Actually, like, CrimeCon does a really good job of, um, of really elevating the 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 victims. Yeah, and totally. doing a really good job of honoring the victims, mm -hmm. and and that's really what I love about it. It's not like, oh, let's go to CrimeCon and celebrate Ted Bundy, right? right. And like talk right. about how cool Ted Bundy is, right. All right? It's not like that. It's it really they do a really good job of honoring the victims of these crimes and allowing them to speak. Yeah, and you know talking about. So I, and, I love that. And continuing the conversation going on for so many of these victims that have. You know, their story's been forgotten. You yes. know I mean? We have so many things going on in our lives. And they shine the light on these older stories that maybe people don't remember, they don't know the details of. And I just think it's, it's just a, such an interesting thing, and it's a, it's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, let me go to another part of this, because I think, you know, you go to, you go to crime crime, you see one of these terrible stories of, of, of someone who's, you know, lost a child. Mm -hmm. And they say the same thing all the time. They always say, uh, you know, no parent should ever have to bury their child. We're now turning back to the pro-life conversation here. So many mothers, especially going through the chemical part of, of, of the abortion, are now kind of in that position where, yes. where they're dealing face-to-face -face with this new thing they never thought they'd be thinking of, burying their own child that they have chosen to end the life of. This has got to be incredibly traumatic for most women. Yes, and uh, I think that we don't even understand just how we don't understand the repercussions of what this is going to do to women. Um, the FDA continues to lift restrictions on the chemical abortion pill. So, you know, when it was first introduced, it was 49 days. So you couldn't be past seven weeks, mm -hmm. right? Um, then, you know, it was nine weeks and now, then it was 10 and now it's 12. And in some countries, uh, Canada is one of them. They will allow women to take misoprostol, the second part of the abortion pill regimen. They will allow her to take that up until 24 weeks mm. gestation. So she Jeez. can literally deliver labor and deliver a live baby uh, in her home in a hotel room, and they give her a biohazard medical waste bag to put her baby, that could be born breathing, to put her baby in um, and then take it to the abortion facility. 
um, or the hospital where oh they gosh. will dispose of it. So her baby that's born alive breathing, uh, the lungs just collapse and the baby ends up suffocating. Um, mm. That could be coming for us here in the United States. And honestly, it could happen, Stu, because there is no physician oversight for these women who are currently taking medication abortion mm -hmm. pills. So they can go into a pharmacy, get the pills, never see a physician. They have no idea how far along they are in their pregnancy. They never have an ultrasound. They never see a physician. Um, they don't know if it's an ectopic pregnancy. So they could think they have an intrauterine pregnancy, but they don't. They have an ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy in their fallopian tube. They take these pills, they bleed, they cramp, they think they had the abortion, but actually mm. their tube could rupture and they could literally die before they get to the emergency room. That is now considered standard and progressive women's health care in the United States. Women are literally going to die. A woman, a young girl, actually just recently died in Canada because of the medication abortion pill. Parts of her baby were left in her body. She thought the abortion had was complete. She thought she had passed all of her baby. She had not. Parts of her baby were still in her womb. Uh, she developed an infection, she became septic, and a 19-year-old girl died. Oh my God. We're going to see more and more of that happening all across this world, but particularly in the United States, where Biden has just greenlit this into every home of every woman across this country. Yeah, you know, and it's, it, look, you know, the, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a massive, yes. massively important thing. It allowed the conversation to even occur, right? Before yes. this, you couldn't even really do anything about it. You just had to... You know, you could try to convince people and that was it. Um, I think it's a really important thing. I and mean, we've got we've got the mugs to prove it here. Um, you know, we we, we want to remember, remember that date. But I will say, like, I think a lot of people on the pro-life side of this saw that as an end. Like they thought, OK, we finally got this done. Hooray. Let's celebrate. And let's, you know, take a nap. And it's like, well, this just starts the conversation. I mean, because you mentioned what's going on with with medication. And if look, even if Biden doesn't do what he does, they can get them from India. They yes. can get them from Europe. Uh, the only way is to persuade people that this is the horror show that it is. And I think that part of that part of the, the conversation is really just beginning. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not. It, OK, the illegality of abortion is important. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Because the law is a teacher. Mm -hmm. So for many people, they look at abortion and they go, well, it's, you know, it's legal, so it must be okay. Right. Right. For a lot of people, lot of people yeah. legality equals morality. Mm -hmm. So we know that the illegality of abortion matters. But our goal, our end goal is not just to make abortion illegal. The end goal is to make abortion unthinkable. Right. Yeah. So just mm -hmm. like when we think of slavery, yep. we think, oh, my gosh, how did that even happen? Like, yeah. how did we even allow that? That's crazy. Right. We'd never allow that to happen today. Just like when we think of the Jewish Holocaust, we think, yeah. oh, my gosh, how, we would never allow that to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that is the place where we want to get to with abortion. We want to get to the place where we go. How do we even allow that to happen to this group of human beings in the womb who are so incredibly vulnerable, who are so innocent? Right. They deserve to be protected. They deserve for us to stand up for them no matter what. That that's where we want to get to in this country, where abortion is truly unthinkable.
Do you think, if you fast forward 75 years, 100 years, does society look back at this like it was slavery? I hope so. Uh, I think we are getting there slowly. I yeah. think, you know, our younger generations, they are the most movable on the topic of abortion. Mm. So we know that through studies, they are the most logically and scientifically minded of any generation before them. Mm. So I think when we have these one-on-one -on -one conversations, when we show them the facts, you know, not when we're, look, you're not gonna change somebody's mind through a 242 back and forth comment right. thread on Facebook, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But when you have the one-on-one -on -one conversations with these young people, when you talk to them, we do know that their minds are movable on abortion. And those are the ones that are going into have abortions. So I think talking to these young people, talking to them about facts and science and faith, that's how we get to a culture that, that really just looks at abortion and says, this is abhorrent. And, and how did we ever convince ourselves that this was acceptable in our nation? Well, you're doing a really a great job as, as bringing people, I think, to that, and including people who worked at these clinics. The, the movie is fantastic. You should definitely check it out. It's called She Was Stronger. You can get it at shewasstronger.com and the organization, and then there were none as well. Does so much work uh, to try to, uh, to improve this situation that really, you know, it, it feels... I think when you get to the point where you kind of have that awakening, it feels like it's so obvious mm -hmm. and it's hard to figure out how society can go down this road. But as you pointed out with, you know, post all these previous tragedies like slavery, that same thing does occur. I mean, it does. We do eventually get there. I mean, and it happens, you know, quicker than we think sometimes. I mean, you go back to, you know, separate water fountains, right? Like that's, <laughs> right. it seems completely insane right now. At that time, people accepted it. And I hope we're on the same path with the, uh, the issue of life. And thank you for your work that you've done on this. It's been so important. Thank you, thanks Stu. All right, Babby Johnson, thanks so much. Make sure to follow her on social media, shewasstronger.com as well. Back in a second. Well, they're gonna be rolled dulling Ian Fleming. Yes, the author of the James Bond movies is getting the rolled doll treatment. And uh, so, you know, a lot of this stuff is like, they're gonna be taking out the racist references in James Bond, what could possibly go wrong? Editing classics of literature. Why, why, why would, what could possibly go wrong? Now, some of this is like, you know, you might say obvious, right? Like the N word, for example, is in some of these books. They're taking that out. They're replacing it with black person, things like that. Uh, I would argue that, like, even when it is super offensive like that, you should still leave it in because we should remember the things that we've done that are wrong, that maybe culture has made improper decisions on. Just throwing them out and erasing them as if they never occurred, not usually a good plan. I thought we kind of agreed on that. Um, there are other very some very strange um, things. Dated references to other uh, ethnicities will remain, such as Bond's racial terms for East Asian people and the spies' disparaging views of odd job Goldfinger's Korean henchmen. References to the, quote, sweet tang of rape, end quote, blithering women failing to do a man's work, and homosexuality being a stubborn disability also remain. Now, look, you want to put this at the beginning? I guess they're going to be putting a disclaimer at the beginning. I'm actually kind of fine with this. It says, uh, this book was written at a time when terms and attitudes which might be considered offensive by modern readers were commonplace. All right, put that in there. Add one more sentence. If you don't like it, don't read it. That's all you need. 
Instead, they're going to go through and re-edit these books and take someone's work, who's not, I mean, in many of these cases, not around to actually approve or deny the changes, and steal their art. Well, you can't do this to art. But they're going to try it anyway. We'll see if this one holds up. Join the movement. BlazeTV.com slash Stu. The promo code is Stu. Save 10 bucks. We'll see you tomorrow.